Well, we have been talking through Lent about the meaning of the cross, and we now switch, as it's Holy Week, and look towards Easter. And uh, today, I want to just take time to talk through and tell the story of the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry as he goes towards the cross. Now, if you follow along in your bulletin, you'll see uh, there's a a page that shows you the, the different verses that some Gospels have certain stories while other Gospels have different stories. Some Gospels, like Matthew, doesn't seem to care that much about the timeline. He just sort of says what happens. Whereas if you go to Mark and Luke, they're more specific about what days things in particular happen. So I'm going to be generally following that outline, but it's important just to note that that's how the Gospels work. Each of the Gospels have their own perspective Um, They're not telling a biography of Jesus the way you would go get a biography in a bookstore today. Um, They're trying to make a point about Jesus. And so they're selecting the material that they're putting in there and what they're trying to say about Jesus. Um, This is how all biographies were until just a couple hundred years ago. Um, So um, Jesus is at Holy Week heading towards Jerusalem. It's been his intention all along. He's been talking about it. He knows it's coming. His whole life has come to this point. John eleven fifty five says, And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Many is an understatement. We're not totally sure about how, exactly how many people lived in Jerusalem, but it, estimates are between twenty and 30,000 uh, people may have lived there permanently. But in Passover week, uh, that, would be, that figure would balloon to maybe six to ten times as many people in Jerusalem. It was actually a law at certain times in history that if you lived within 25 miles of Jerusalem and you were a Jewish male, you were required to go there for Passover to celebrate People from all over the place came. Jerusalem couldn't possibly hold that many people. So a lot of people would stay with family where they could, and then they would stay on the outskirts of town too. And Jesus goes to the uh, town of Bethany. Now, if you track Bethany in, uh, in the New Testament, you find Jesus goes there quite a bit. He has great friends that live there. Mary and Martha and Lazarus live there. And they seem to be sort of his home base where he needs to go recover. He goes to see them, stay with them. Um, They are uh, good friends, apparently of some wealth because they're able to house very often a big group of people. They're sort of Jesus' benefactors and friends uh, in ministry. And he goes there often. He has just recently been there to raise Lazarus from the dead. Okay, So he's been in town, then did a little more traveling And has come back to Bethany, which is about three miles from Jerusalem. Which means uh, in those days when you walked everywhere, three miles is nothing. He could easily go in for the day in Jerusalem and walk back out. He enters this busy city, crowded, so many people everywhere. Enters the political struggles of his day. Enters the watchful eye of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, who are out to stop him and are frustrated with him by now enters the ruling of the Roman Empire, who is obviously going to keep an eye on such a big festival of citizens because they don't want any kind of outbreak or rebellion. All the time, he's walking towards the cross. He knows how this week ends. And he knows how difficult it's going to be on his disciples. 
And so if you, if you take a look, as we're going to do today, I'm just going to take you through that week and tell you some of the things that Jesus says and does. You're going to find that he picks up on a lot of these themes and it can really help shape how you view Easter. So Friday, Jesus arrives at Bethany, three miles outside of Jerusalem. Been there many times, been there recently to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's anointed by Mary there. He has some conversation with people there. The anointing of Jesus is interesting in and of itself. There were two way, two times that you would be anointed. You could be anointed uh, for uh, kingship. When you were made king, you were anointed. You might be anointed for oil or some, uh, with oil for healing or something like that. But the other big time where this kind of anointing would take place is at death, is in the embalming process. So it's not entirely sure what Mary has in mind as she does this. Is she doing this to honor him as king? Does she have a sense of his death? The disciples don't seem to be getting it. But it's coming. The chief priests have already started to plot against Jesus. There's already a plot to potentially kill Lazarus, who was dead and then rose and has been a big testimony to Jesus' power. There's a lot going on as they enter that town that day. Sabbath comes. Sabbath in those days was Saturday. And so they celebrate the Sabbath together, likely in Bethany. Uh, They probably would not have walked to Jerusalem for Sabbath. Sunday comes. And remember, Sunday is like Monday back then. It's the first day of the week. It's the big week of Passover. And so there are a number of things that go on that day. First of all, the Roman Empire is not going to allow all these Jews to gather and not have some force there. So there is an extra guard of centurions. There were a lot of things going on to make sure that these rebellious people who they've had a history of rebelling before, they're not going to go in, going on too much. And so the King Herod actually comes toward Jerusalem that day. Probably whenever the king came to town, he would parade in. So the king probably got on a stallion or some really great horse and come rode, came riding, riding into Jerusalem like a parade, and people would be expected to be there and to cheer, and that was just how it was done, as this show of power for the Roman Empire. The other thing that would happen on Sunday is the lambs that would be sacrificed at Passover, and there were a lot of lambs because there would be sacrifices for Passover that happened at the temple, and you would eat that in your home for the Passover celebration. All those lambs would have to be brought into Jerusalem that day. Probably they were raised in Bethlehem. Interesting connection to Jesus there. And all these lambs would be brought in, kind of paraded into Jerusalem, often led by the high priest. And there'd be one lamb that was the perfect spotless lamb. And that would probably be carried on the shoulders of the high priest. And so sometime during that day, there would be a march of the lambs into Jerusalem. Everybody would celebrate and cheer there because there would be uh, this big celebration, right? We're here for the Passover lamb. Of course, there's a third parade that day. We call it Palm Sunday. Jesus marches in. And once again, there's this parade, although the parade is a little bit different. Jesus is the lamb of God, though they don't know that yet. He's not riding on a stallion in power. He's riding on a donkey. People are saying, Hosanna, save us, or save now, or save please. They're waving palm branches, a national symbol, a symbol of hope for the people. The palm branches were used in the festival of Succoth, or the festival of the tabernacles. They would sing and wave palm branches, 
and ask God's blessing on their crops during that festival. And so it's this great, great symbol of God being with them and for them. They would partially do that because of Psalm 96.12 that says, Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice. Interestingly enough, in 163 BCE, there was this big rebellion in Jerusalem. A man named Judas Maccabees led a revolt to get all the sacrificial the sacrifices to pagan gods out of Jerusalem. And there was one particular pagan god that you sacrificed pigs to. Imagine the Jewish people having pigs sacrificed in the temple. So he leads this big rebellion. They kick all the people out. And they actually, at the end of that, have the celebration of Succoth or of the tabernacles, and they wave those palm branches just then. So you can imagine the intensity building as Jesus is coming in. That the, the Sanhedrin, that the high priest who marched in with the lambs feels threatened by Jesus' parade. But now the Romans are starting to get a little nervous, right? Because they, they've heard the stories of Judas Maccabees and the rebellion that's taken place. And so everybody's getting a little nervous. Jesus comes into town. He weeps over Jerusalem. He knows that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. He has this sense of, of how this is all, this is his home. This is a place he's gone to. Uh, he was there to be circumcised as a child, he, as an infant. He was there uh, teaching uh, as a child. He's been there many, many times. And he knows the brokenness that's coming. He enters the temple, looks around, and then kind of returns to Bethany. Doesn't really do much with all this hoopla and to-do. Monday, he starts to head back into Jerusalem, and he passes a fig tree. Now, at this time of year, uh, fig trees would not often be in bloom. So it's kind of weird that Jesus expects this fig tree to be in bloom, except, interestingly enough, I did not know this. learned this this week. Figs start growing on trees before the leaves do. So if you see a fig tree and it has leaves, which this tree does, you expect fruit from that tree because the fruit starts before the leaves. Jesus goes over to this tree that has leaves and yet it does not have fruit. And so he curses the tree. Why? Well, I think partially it's the promise of fruit uh, without actual fruit. Maybe in that tree, not only is Jesus hungry at the time, but he sees what's going on in Israel at the moment. He sees that the, the Jewish leadership at that time is uh, promising fruit, promising good things, promising that the people are going to be close to God, but they have nothing to show for it. And he's keenly aware of that as he's being rejected and tested by these people. His anger comes to a head when he goes into the temple and he sees all this stuff happening that's not supposed to be there. Money changers, people getting ripped off. There's an elitist sort of view. So you, you wanted to be able to afford the best animals, but you had to pay more. So if you, were, if you had more money, you'd be in better standing in the temple than those who were poor. And Jesus can't stand this. And so he gets angry and he overturns the tables and he chases people out of the temple. And you can imagine that the Jewish leaders are really happy with this, right? The high priest is ecstatic that Jesus is questioning and messing up the business enterprise of the temple. Jesus heads back to Bethany to sleep that night. Tuesday, they come back into town and they see this fig tree that Jesus has cursed the day before and it's faded, it's withered, the leaves are no more. And Jesus adds as they are discussing this fig tree on the way back into Bethany that uh, that same kind of power is with the disciples. I wonder if he is expecting 
their, their weekend and how devastated they're going to be. And they don't understand yet the power that he has is something that they have too. Jesus gets into all kinds of trouble on Tuesday at the temple. He comes in to teach and they question his authority. They seek to trip him up. They ask him about taxes. Jesus, should we pay taxes or not pay taxes? Now, this is a great trap by the the Sanhedrin, by the Jewish leadership. Because if Jesus says, no, you're not supposed to pay taxes, they can get him in trouble with the Romans. And why not get him in trouble with the Romans so they get mad at him rather than have us get mad at him? And then if the people all love him, these crowds that paraded in with him with palm branches, then they're going to get mad at us. Let's get him in trouble with the Romans. But Jesus avoids that. Whose face is on the coin, he says, will render unto Caesar what Caesar's render unto God, what is God's. They try to ask him about resurrection. Another question that was a real feisty issue for the Sanhedrin. Pharisees uh, believed in it. Sadducees did not. It's one of their main fighting points, but he avoids it. He has seven woes to the Pharisees. Woe to the Pharisees. Hypocrites. Calls them all kinds of not nice things. Just calls them out on their behavior. But amazingly enough, as mad as he's getting everybody, Jesus remains really innocent. He doesn't fall for their stuff. There's really nothing to crucify him over. On his way back, he goes past Mount Olivet, goes through Mount Olivet to get to Bethany. He talks about the end times, tells a couple of parables about masters going away in the parable of the talents. He's trying to start getting the disciples ready for what's coming, but I'm not sure they're getting it. Wednesday, Jesus comes again to teach in the temple, and it's at this point that the Sanhedrin decide we cannot just trap this guy, get him arrested. He is not going to shut up. We're going to have to kill him. We're going to have to have him killed. That seems like a strong reaction, but you've got to understand a few things. You've got to understand the Jewish leadership sort of act as the bridge between Israel and Rome. And they're making out on that. I mean, they're, they're making some money and they're getting some power because they're the go-between, because they help out Rome in this way. If Jesus incites a riot, they're going to get in trouble and lose their power. And if there's too much of a riot, they understand Rome is not above coming in, wiping everything out, shipping everybody off into different areas. This has been done in their history, and they're right to be afraid of this because it happens to the Jews after the death of Jesus much later. They need to have their authority, and Jesus won't fall in line. He won't stand on their view of things. He he hangs out with the wrong kind of people, and they can't let him live. But he's popular. They can't just arrest him in public, or else they probably would have arrested him before this. But he's always with a great crowd of people. He's always in a parade. There's always people everywhere. They need to arrest him quietly. They need to try him quietly. And they would love to get the Romans on board with this process. Particularly if they're going to kill him. Because they did not have the power to crucify anybody. They were not legally allowed. They could, they could beat someone. They could have someone whipped for violating their rules. But, but execution was something only the Romans could do. Jesus starts the preparation for Passover, and Thursday is the big day. It's the Passover day. You had to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. You weren't allowed to do it in Bethany. So Jesus sets up for them to have an upper room. A number of things happen at that upper room as he's gathered with his disciples. Instead of washing their hands the way you would as part of the ceremony, 
He washes their feet. They go through the Passover celebration, remembering the lamb that's slain to protect them in the, uh, the ten plagues. But Jesus reads himself into it. He says, look at this broken bread. This is me. I'm going to be broken. Look at the blood of the lamb that saves the people. I am going to shed my blood. He says, one of you is going to betray him. One of, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas ends up leaving. He's already made the deal to get the silver and to find a quiet place where Jesus can be arrested. He says they're all going to depart from him. He's going to be leaving them. Peter says, no, 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 no. I will stay with you for anything. And Jesus says, tonight, before the cut grows three times, you're going to deny me three times. This is all happening, all this evening. Jesus, in the book of John, has a big, long discourse where he teaches all kinds of things. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the true vine, and you are the branches. Abide in me, he says to his disciples. He promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says to them, you will be hated in the world, but fear not, I have overcome the world. The amazing words Jesus knows. He's about to be arrested. He's going to be killed the next day. And yet he claims there for them that he's already overcome the world. He's trying to prepare them. He prays for his disciples. He prays for you and I and those that would follow. It's called the high priestly prayer. He prays on our behalf to the Father. And then sometime very late that night, maybe even early in the morning, Jesus goes to Gethsemane to pray. He's prayed there before. It's a familiar place to him. Remember, Jesus is fully God, but he's fully human too. This is going to hurt. He knows what's coming. He knows the pain. He knows the anguish. He feels the sorrow. He knows he's going to feel the weight of the world's sins on his shoulder. He's going to be tortured and he's going to die. He's not looking forward to this. He's moving towards this. He's intentional about this. But this is going to hurt, and he feels it. And he sweats drops of blood. It's actually a real thing can happen, very rare. Uh, hematidrosis, it's called, where people actually begin in anxiety to sweat blood. But in the end, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Multiple times he goes to his disciples. He's off praying. He says, stay awake with me. He wants the comfort of his disciples, but what are they doing? They're sleeping. They're sleeping. He wants comfort from them, and they're sleeping. And he knows the comfort he wants from them is only going to go further away as they all flee when this all goes down. But think about their week. Let's be a little sensitive to the disciples this week, right? I mean, they've gone through so much. Three years following Jesus, traveling around, seeing him tested more and more by the Sanhedrin, see him come parading in. How excited would you have been to be a disciple at Palm Sunday, right? The parade is coming in, and you think, this is my, this is my guy here. I'm with him. I'm one of his dudes, right? You're excited. You think he's going to be king. You've seen him do all these miracles, but you also see him tested. You see him pushed by the Sanhedrin. they got to be a little bit nervous, right? They know what the Sanhedrin are like. They know what the Romans are like. they got to know that this could end badly. And Jesus keeps talking about it like it's going to end badly. Like he's going to leave them. Like he's going to die. It's been a long, long day. And Passover celebration is a long, big, drawn-out thing. They're tired. 
they sleep. Sometime after midnight, in the wee hours of the morning, Judas comes and betrays Jesus, Jesus with, a t- with a kiss. He must have known he was going to go there. He must have talked about it, or he knew Jesus likes late at night to go off to Gethsemane. We'll probably find him there. The disciples try to, Peter tries to fight. They try to, try to push back. Jesus cuts off a man's ear, but Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not how this is going to go. And instead of inciting them to fight, he willingly goes with his accusers. The disciples scatter and run. The only one brave enough to follow with Jesus is the one we give a hard time because he denied him three times. He's the only one brave enough to go with him at all. Everybody else flees. Jesus that night, um, under the cover of night, because if you were a Jewish leader, you would not want to be trying Jesus in front of the crowds. You want to do it in your home. You want to do it privately. Apparently it goes through three trials that we can make out in the text. Annas, Caiaphas, and the full Sanhedrin. But they want him crucified. And so they've got to send him to the Roman officials. So they send him to Pilate. Pilate doesn't say anything wrong with this guy. Why, why should I mess with this guy? But the crowds are so excited, he tries to send it up to Herod, who I already said is in town for the Passover festival. He doesn't normally, not, not normally that close, but he is that close right now. Herod won't try it. He sends it back to Pilate, and Pilate eventually washes his hands and sentences him to death, giving the crowd what they want. So they give him Barabbas instead. Amazing the change in the crowd, right? We were saying Hosanna on Sunday. Now a crowd yells crucify him on Friday. Jesus is stripped. He's beaten. He's whipped. He's put a, he has a crown of thorns put on his head. He is made to carry his cross, which he can't carry the whole way because he's just exhausted. He's crucified about 9 a.m. Dies about 3 p.m leaving just enough time for them to take him down, take care of his body, to bury him at least temporarily in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And they're going to come back at the beginning of the week after the Sabbath to take care of him. Now the story does not end there, of course. Easter is coming. But that's a story for next week. We know that Christ lives. We know that Jesus does save the people, those people crying Hosanna. Jesus remains the way, the truth, and the life, even after death. Jesus brings in a kingdom, but it's not the kingdom that the Jews or the Romans are expecting. It's a different kind of kingdom. But we've got to leave that story sit a little bit more for next week. Easter is coming. It's my prayer, though, that as you go through this Holy Week, you'd look this over and you'd think about all these different themes that are getting woven in here. And all the things Jesus must have been thinking about. And the disciples must have been thinking about as he heads to the cross. Because I think if you do, if you stick in the story a little bit, read the story with your, for yourself, read it with your spouse, read it with your kids, with your grandkids, I think you're going to find Easter is so much more sweet. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this Holy Week. Prepare us for Easter. Let us recognize the story, recognize the struggle for Jesus. And let us be thankful on Easter that he went to the cross for us 
that he rose for us and that we can be made new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.